Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. I want to welcome you to Sunrise Church. My name is Steve Garcia. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so thrilled that you chose to spend your Christmas Eve with us. I want to say a special welcome to all who are watching with our online campus, and, and after we're all done here, I want to invite you to hang around out in our courtyard. We've got all kinds of activities and jumpers for the kids. There's snacks. There's photo ops, and I'll be out there, too. would love an opportunity to meet you and your family and personally welcome you to Sunrise Church. And, we're also thinking about our worship pastor on this day. He and his wife are at the hospital expecting their third baby. doesn't get more Christmas than that. <laughs> so we'll continue to pray for them. And You know, one of the things that makes Christmas so magical are kids. We just saw some of them on stage. And one of the things that, that, that why, why Christmas is, is so wonderful with children is because they possess something that so many of us have lost, a sense of wonder. It's, it's, the, it's the gasp when the, the decorated tree is first plugged in, or the excitement of them tearing open a gift, or the, or the open-mouthed awe with each new discovery. And for, for so many of us, we've, we've lost that. And I think the same can be true in the church. You know, especially if you're a regular church attender, you know, when you, when you hear some of the familiar Bible stories about the birth of Christ, it's, there's a tendency to meet it with a yawn. For those of you who only come to church on, on Christmas or Easter, it's like you, you kind of only know two stories, and those are two pretty great stories to know, but that familiarity can rob us of a sense of wonder. And so my hope today is that we could just pause, take a step back, and be reminded of how utterly amazing it is that God came down to us as Jesus was born. And that we would, in the process, rediscover our Christmas wonder. So, if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, why don't you make your way over to the New Testament Gospel of John. We have been looking at John chapter 1 for the last couple of weeks, and that's going to be the case again today. John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, and here's how he began his Gospel, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Word translates into Greek as logos. And this had deep and rich meaning to John's audience. The ancient Jews believed logos was, was the acts of God. The ancient Greeks believed that logos was this divine power that gave the world reason and order. Every human being has stirring within them some sense that there's something out there. There's something bigger than me, something beyond me. It's, it, it's God or it's a universe or, or, or dead relatives looking down on me, but there's something out there. John leans right into us and says, yes, there is something out there. It's, it's logos. It's the word. And now I'm going to tell you what the word is, or more importantly, who the word is. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he would have been met with a lot of heads nodding in affirmation. Yes, Logos was at the beginning. We're with you. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
So John was saying the, the logos, the, the word, was there from the very start. And all of his audience would have agreed. Of course, the logos had to be there at the beginning. Something had to get this whole thing started. Anything that has a beginner, the beginning must have a beginner. Evolutionists would not agree with that. They say, no, everything started with the Big Bang, which begs the question, where did that come from? You see, something can't come from nothing. Something always comes from something. John was saying that something is the word. He's got the whole thing started. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so now John is saying it, this, the, the life that we have is not just biological. It's spiritual. It has meaning. And in this point in time, everybody would have been in agreement with him. If this was a modern church service, he would have been hearing, amen, and, and preach it, brother. And that would have stopped with the next statement he made. This is verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the record scratch. This is the moment where everybody at the party stops dancing. Oh, hang on a second. Are you saying that? God, the, the one who started all of this, transformed into a person? And John said, yep, and we saw him. He continues, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, whom came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now John says the, the Word is actually the Son of God, and the Son of God has a name. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So John wanted to be abundantly clear. The logos, the word, the creator who began this whole thing is actually Jesus Christ. And this Jesus, the word became flesh and lived among people. I mean, can you just stop and, and, and be in awe of something as wild as this? Wait, wait, so, so God, did he stop becoming God and he became a person? No. He, Jesus was always God, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, the three-in-one God. But Jesus didn't trade in, in, in divinity. He added on humanity when he entered into the world as a baby. This ought to inspire some awe within your spirits. We should never yawn at something as, as wild as this. Why in the world would God do something like this? Why does it matter to me? And this is part of reawakening that sense of wonder in our lives. And today, I want to guide us through uh, s some different wonders that I hope will inspire your spirit to, to sit right up and realize there is no God like the God of the Bible. And here's the first one. I would love for us to rediscover the wonder of God's power. Isn't it amazing? The word became flesh. God came down to us, not as an adult king, not as a battle-ready warrior, but as a helpless baby. Let's go back to the night in which Jesus was born. We're going to jump from John 1 to Luke 2. Here's how it begins. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is not just a book of fairy tales or myths. None of that is true. It's actually a historical record. Caesar Augustus was a real person. His, his birth name was Octavian, and his adopted father was Julius Caesar, who upon his death made Octavian his heir. And so Rome was divided into three leaders. And as you can imagine, three guys trying to run Rome, they were all jockeying for the biggest piece of the pie. And this caused all kinds of warring between the three factions. Well, Octavian was a brilliant military strategist, and he eventually squeezed out the other two guys. And so Rome stopped being a system ruled by law and became an empire ruled by one person. Octavian became the first ever Roman emperor, and he took on the name Caesar, meaning ruler, Augustus, meaning exalted one. He was such an important figure in history that you've used his name and haven't even realized it. Ever wonder where the eighth month got its name? From this guy, Caesar Augustus. And he issued a census. And he wasn't interested in just getting demographic data of the Roman world. He wanted the most accurate means of taxing people. This may be hard to believe, but back then, the number one thing that the government cared about was money. <laughs> Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he, believed, he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So because Joseph, his line was in David, he needed to go to Bethlehem. He came along with uh, the woman he was to marry, Mary, who was, who was pregnant, not by natural means, but by supernatural means, which is awe-inspiring in and of itself, and they descended upon Bethlehem. But what Joseph didn't know, and what Mary didn't know, and what Caesar Augustus himself didn't know, is that they were all a part of God's unfolding prophecy. Listen to the Old Testament words of the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Part of rediscovering the, the wonder of God's power is realizing these words were written hundreds of years before Octavian ever became Caesar, before Joseph and Mary ever showed up in Bethlehem. This is how God planned the whole thing, and they were part of it. Back to Luke 2. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Bethlehem was packed with people who were all in the exact same situation as Mary and Joseph. They all had to show up for Caesar's census, and, and there was hardly any place for, for everybody to find lodging. And so for Mary and Joseph... Uh, the, the baby was coming. They needed to take whatever they could get. I mean, you guys understand crowds. You live in Southern California. You understand what this time of the year is like. You experience it just in parking lots. I mean, how many of you have circled the parking lot over and over looking for a spot? Getting in one of those little showdowns. No, I had my blinker on first. No, I had my blinker on. No, I'm going to turn in first. Or you see somebody walking with bags, and you're like, oh, I think they might be going in the car. So you start following them slowly like a stalker. Okay? You guys understand that. Okay? Imagine a whole city like that, everyone jockeying for position. You know, most of what we picture about the birth of Jesus has been informed by art. 
you know, many of us in our homes have nativity sets set up. And these are typically depicted as like a wooden barn-like structure with a roof. You know, there's some hay, a sleeping donkey, and then a little wooden bed for Jesus. And these are, uh, the nativity scenes are artistic renderings, but not historical depictions. The reality is that, in all likelihood, Jesus was born in a cave. There are many caves in Bethlehem where shepherds would often keep their sheep uh, to protect them from the elements. And that was the, the more likely scenario of where Jesus was born. You know, this past January, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. And one of the places that I got to visit was Bethlehem. It's located in Palestine, the West Bank. And, and the, the, the site where it's widely believed that Jesus was born now has a church built above it. Here's a picture of it. It's called the Church of the Nativity. And as you can see, it's this big, ornate, orthodox church. And they have services that are conducted in there. And so everybody comes in. Nobody's there for the service. They're all lined up to go find the cave underneath. And so this is the entry point to get down to that cave, this next picture here. Everybody's sort of jockeying in and get through that little door with the light on. If you are somebody who struggles with claustrophobia, you would not enjoy this experience. Everybody's pushing to get through a tiny little doorway. And then when you get in, this is what you get to see, the, the place they believe Jesus was born. That's what it looks like right there. And so you kind of get down on your hands and knees and you stick your head in. And people, people go in there and they pray and they cry and they kiss the ground. And when it came to be my turn, the very unspiritual part of me is like, how many COVID lips have touched this floor? I'm not trying to get sick. And so I kind of like kept my distance a little bit. When I, when I got back out, I snapped a picture of the street. Uh, this is what it looked like right here. That might not stand out to you as much, so I want to zoom in a little bit. Um, take a look at, look at this. Hey, it's a sign from God. He wants you to financially support our Here to Stay giving initiative of building a new peace center here at the Rialto campus. How about that? Then after this, I found out where Mary and Joseph probably got their morning coffee, this little place here, Stars and Bucks. Not to be confused with the popular American coffee chain, Starbucks. Uh, apparently, copyright laws in Palestine are not as widely enforced. But, you know, to, be, to be perfectly honest, my time in Bethlehem was a little bit of a disappointment. It, it, kind, of felt like a, it kind of felt like I was worshiping an idol or something. And that's when our tour guide took us off the beaten path, and he brought us to a field where shepherds once worked. I snapped a picture with my phone, and, and it overlooks the city of David there in the background. I just thought, I wonder if this was the place where shepherds were, or were looking up at the stars on that, on that glorious night. And right next to this was an entrance to a cave that, that, that stretched down below the ground. And we traveled in a large group. My entire group was able to fit down into this cave with room to spare. We didn't have to hunch over or anything. And uh, as you can see from this next photo, there's plenty of space for shelter for a woman like Mary to give birth to her child. That was probably the, the most likely scenario. Let's continue on in Luke 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
Now, there's been a lot of argument over the years as to what the actual day was that Jesus was born. Some people would say, well, it couldn't have been December 25th because, you know, the shepherds were, were outside watching over their flocks at night. It would be too cold for that. Actually, it's entirely possible. You want to know what the climate is like in Bethlehem? Just walk outside today because the weather in Southern California is almost identical to the weather in Israel. You guys know what December nights are like. We'll get some that are cold and some that are quite pleasant. It's entirely possible that Jesus was born on December 25th. But that's actually not the point of what's going on here. The point of what's going on here is an angel visited to make a special announcement. This is now the fourth angelic visit in a short amount of time. The first one came to the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. Second one came to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Third one came to Joseph in a dream. And now this fourth one coming to angels. So why would such an important birth announcement be made to shepherds? Now, now much has been written about shepherds being lowly, and that was certainly the case in terms of social status. They were never considered influential or popular. But make no mistake, shepherds were incredible people. These guys, they didn't just collect a paycheck. They loved the sheep. They knew every single one of their sheep, all of their tendencies. They knew when their sheep had something wrong with them and needed special care. They, they would lead these sheep to get the best food and the best drink to make them healthy. They would protect the sheep from predators like wolves and bears. And these sheep responded to the sound of their shepherd's voice. Does any of this sound familiar? Jesus himself would later say these words, recorded in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Friends, there's nothing accidental in the Bible. The reason why angels visited shepherds, it was a foreshadowing of the kind of leader Jesus was and is. See, the Bible describes all people as sheep. But the ones who respond to the voice of the good shepherd are the ones who are taken care of. Let's continue. Luke chapter 2. The, the shepherds were speaking with one angel and then quickly realized oh, there's more than one. Verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those to whom his favor rests. So imagine the skies that the shepherds so familiarly gazed into now they see legions upon legions upon legions of angels breaking out in song. It was as if heaven itself could not contain its excitement that the Savior was born. The Word became flesh. And the shepherds were picked that day to be a part of an angelic worship service. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. It's true. There he is, the Savior of the world as a baby, God in the flesh. Let that sink in. This is part of rediscovering the, the wonder of God's power. Do you still have that wonder in you? Or has that been snuffed out? Has the darkness of this world stripped you of this wonder? 
John had it. You heard it in his words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, there is nothing like this in all of the world. There's no God like this in every religion under the sun. Never once has there been a story of God coming down to us. Now, if you look at the the pantheon of of Greek gods and ancient Greek mythology, a lot of them looked like humans, but the Greeks believed that they were immortals who had human tendencies. Clearly not God becoming a person. Or you can look at a lot of the Eastern religions of the world, like Buddhism, for example, where where a person became like God, where uh, allegedly Buddha, uh, through hard human effort, attained a state of enlightenment, a a godlike state, but not God becoming a person. Or, Or Hinduism, for example, has lots of gods who take on human form. Doesn't this look like a warm little deity worth worshiping? A multi-armed woman who's smiling as she stabs one guy in the chest and another guy in the heart with a pitchfork. Wouldn't you like to see that on a Christmas card? (laughs) Season's greetings from the supreme Hindu goddess. Friends, that's nothing like the God of the Bible. How many of us say every religion is the same? It's all just a different kind of God. There's only one where God came down to be a person So much of religion is about us trying to get to God, and yet Jesus is God who came down to us. Does that awaken something in your spirit? Listen to how the Apostle Paul described it in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Can you imagine having all of the powers of God himself and limiting yourself to the body of a little baby? I mean, that would be like the equivalent of a painter stepping into his painting. Can you imagine an artist finishing his last stroke and then stepping into the framework of his portrait? even though he knows what it's like to exist outside of that framework, to outside of just what we could see. That's the God of the Bible. And that's the the wonder we have to rediscover, that, that a God would have this kind of power to come down to be a person and yet limit himself to a little child. Wow. May that spark something in our souls. May we rediscover the wonder of God's power. Here's another one. May we rediscover the wonder of God's hope. It's true with the shepherds. Let's go back to Luke 2, 15. It says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. Instantly, the shepherds' hearts were filled with hope. How do we know? They left their flocks. Shepherds never did that kind of thing. They left their sheep unattended in a field at nighttime. Why? Because when when hope is born in your heart, everything changes. The birth 
of Jesus changed everything. Now, now birth, in general, changes life. Ask any person who's got young kids at home how their life changed when a little baby showed up. Priorities changed. Budget changed. Time changed. There's a time where they used to be able to go out of the house and get in their car and get on a bike and do whatever they want. Now there's diaper bags and there's cribs and there's the baby's favorite blanket and the baby's favorite pacifier and make sure Rosetta Stone is playing in the car so our baby can learn how to speak Mandarin by six months. You know, there's all of this stuff. And even if you don't have kids, maybe you know somebody who does. They're not fun anymore. <laughs> They're just tired. There, there was a time where you guys could go to a movie you know, afterwards, go out and grab some food. Now everything's going to be wrapped up by 6 p.m. You know? <laughs> birth changes a lot of things. The birth of Jesus changed everything because the birth of Christ was the birth of hope. And these shepherds lost their mind, left their sheep behind, and they went running to go and find Jesus. Now, how in the world did they locate him? Bethlehem was a city that was buzzing with people who were all there for Caesar's census. You know, the Magi, they had a miraculous star that they could follow. How in the world did the shepherds find Jesus? Well, they had a pretty good clue. He was in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Now, again, when I was in Israel, I, we saw mangers all over the place. Here's one. I snapped a picture of it. That's me <laughs> channeling my inner baby Jesus. It's just a stone structure it's almost like a, a box that has a top, top missing. Uh, Pastor Anthony took that picture of me. I tried to ask him to get in. He wasn't having it. But, uh. So if you're a shepherd and you know you're looking for a baby in a feeding trough, that narrows the field right away. Put it, let's put it like this. Let's say that uh, the president of the United States was going to visit Rialto and stay the night. How in the world would you find out where he was in a city that has over 100,000 people? Well, right out of the gates, you could probably identify a couple of neighborhoods where he's not going to be, <laughs> right? You know, Pre President Biden ain't going there. So, so we, could, we, can, we can narrow the field right away. I bet you could locate him within the hour. You probably would start with, okay, what's the nicest hotel in the city? Let's go there and let's look for a bunch of black SUVs and those guys with the little curly radio thing in their ear. I bet you could find him within the hour. The shepherds, who were well acquainted with caves that, that cared for animals, they can narrow the field right away. My guess is that they located Jesus relatively quickly. It says in verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So when the shepherds saw Jesus, they started spreading hope. Mary treasured hope in her heart. And the shepherds went off jumping and praising God. Why? Because they discovered something so many of us have lost, the wonder of God's hope. Hope changes everything. There's a historian by the name of William Durant, and listen to how he described the world that Jesus was born into. He said, The lusty peninsula of Rome was worn out with 20 years of civil war. Its farms had been neglected. Its towns had been sacked or besieged. 
Much of its wealth had been stolen or destroyed. Administration and protection had broken down. Robbers made every street unsafe at night. Highwaymen roamed the roads, kidnapped travelers, and sold them into slavery. Trade diminished. Investment stood still. Interest rates soared. Property values fell. Rome was full of men who had lost their economic footing and then their moral stability. Soldiers who had tasted adventure and had learned to kill. Citizens who had seen their savings consumed in the taxes and inflation of war. And women dizzy with freedom, multiplying divorces, abortions, and adulteries. And then Jesus stepped into the story. This description can be applied to the world we live in today. And Jesus still steps into the story. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And, and when, when Jesus showed up, God as a baby, the word made flesh. Think of the hope that was born. Hope in a God who keeps his promises. Hope in a God who won't leave us or forsake us. If this was true, what else is God still up to? That means the rest of the book is worth believing. Is there part of the plan that has not yet unfolded? That's the kind of hope that ought to be stirred in us today. The problem is that we misplace our hope. For many of us this year, we're going to place our hope in a gift. I really hope I get the iPhone 27. No, you understand, it has a 500 megapixel camera. I mean, how do you expect me to walk around with this relic in my pocket that only has a 499 megapixel camera? You know? And if you don't get the gift, it's like, oh, the season was a bust. For some of us, we put our hope in people. I hope that this year my kid is going to think this was the best Christmas ever. I hope that all of the family is going to be there for the meal. Or that problematic family member. I hope this is the year they suddenly have a turnaround and they stop sabotaging our day. For a lot of us, we've lost hope because death has taken it from us. And this is a season where grief can be especially heavy and complex. And I don't want to minimize that in any way, but I do want to remind you that these are not things that can carry hope for us. We can never hope in a person or a gift, or a court decision, or a doctor's pronouncement, or anything. Friends, we don't hope in a holiday. We hope in a holy king. And so many of us have lost that. We've lost sight of the fact that darkness was broken when Jesus showed up. And understand that after Jesus was born, it's not like people just kind of moved on. Well, that was fun. That's what we do. You know, in 48 hours, some of you will have already taken down all your Christmas decorations. In just a short amount of time, you'll be making plans for a New Year's Eve party. In just a little bit, kids will go back to school, adults will go back to work, family members will go back home, hopefully, and, and, and we'll, we'll move on to whatever the next thing is. Understand that when Jesus was born, people didn't just move on. This represented the start of hope. And God is not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done with this world. Jesus' birth was just part of it. But hope is here for good. May we not lose sight of that.
Amen. Let's rediscover the wonder of God's power, the wonder of God's hope. Here's one more, the wonder of God's love. John said, the word became flesh. Why did God came, come down to us? Because of love. Here's a question worth pondering. If you could travel back in time to your childhood, would you go? Now, some of you had a pleasant childhood, so you might be tempted by that. Some of you had a rather tragic childhood, so that's an easy no. For me, I could never go back. There's too much that I, I know now. I have too many relationships that would be too difficult to part with. I've had too many experiences in my life to, to then turn around and go back on, and you have too. Some of you have worked through pain and disease and addiction and, and heartbreak, and you've emerged on the other side, and you've learned things. Some of you are married. Some of you have kids. Some of you have grandkids. Can you imagine parting from all of that to go back to your own childhood? Jesus left heaven to be a baby. Jesus left paradise. Jesus left perfection. Jesus left the unhindered presence of the Father. For what? To come and be limited to the body of a baby, to be totally dependent on the care of a human mother? The creator of the universe would have to learn how to walk. He would deal with sicknesses, headaches, tripping on rocks, and then as he got older, he would deal with rejection, his mother being insulted, his brothers trying to get him killed, and then eventually unjustly arrested, his character smeared by people's lies, spit on, punched, whipped, and eventually having his arms stretched out on a cross where he would suffocate to death. He didn't have to deal with any of that stuff in heaven. So why did the word become flesh? The writer of Hebrews says it right here. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the joy set before him? It's you, and it's me, and it's any other person who would place their faith in Jesus and experience his redemption, his forgiveness, and his adoption into God's family. The word became flesh out of love. God did all of this because he loves you and I. John continues and says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling can be translated as tabernacle, which was a direct reference to the Old Testament. You see, in the days of Moses, the children of Israel were, were wandering through the wilderness, and so God instructed them to set up a tabernacle, which was a, a tent-like structure that represented the presence of God. It was essentially a portable temple. And it was set up at the center of the Hebrew encampment because God wanted to be in the center of the action, even in the wilderness. And then the word became flesh. Jesus showed up and wants to be in the center of the action. And he wants to be central in your life. He's not just some elusive deity. He wants to be right in the heart of the action. And John continues by saying, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus doesn't just say, just say true things. He is the truth, the standard by which we measure everything else. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you wandering around in the dark. He wants to provide a light for you, the truth. And grace, grace by definition is undeserved reward. The whole reason why the word became flesh was to give us something we didn't deserve. You see, why God became a human was to lay his life down as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. You can't kill a spirit, but you can kill a human. That's why Jesus came, out of love, to lay his life down, to die in our place, to pay for our sins. Somebody's got to pay for it. Jesus said, you guys were the problem. I'm the solution. In what other religion under the sun will you ever find where the hero dies for the villain? Jesus came down to us. And John continues by saying, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. See, God came down to us not because we were good people, not because we deserved it. He simply did it out of love because we didn't deserve it. And there's already grace there, and then Jesus gives more grace and more grace, grace upon grace. It's like eating a Christmas dinner at your grandmother's house. You already had six plates. You can't take any more. And then here comes grandma with a hot platter and scoops some more on your plate. And the same is true with Jesus. And some of us try to plead with him like, I, I can't take any more. I've done so many bad things in my life. I've, I've hurt people. I've hurt myself. I've made horrible choices. And that's when Jesus shows up with a hot platter and scoops some more grace on your plate. Grace upon grace. All of this is because of love. That's why he traded heaven to be a, a, a man fully human, fully God, to die in our place because he loves you. There is no other God like this. May we understand the wonder of his love. And maybe what's even more incredible is that he's not just some historical figure from the past. We can know him today. We can have a personal relationship with him through faith. That's what he desires for our lives, for us to, give, to, to, to open up our hearts and invite him in. How do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Through faith, faith first in, in believing, I can't save myself. I can't good deed my way into heaven. I can't do enough good things to get God to like me. I have to just simply understand I've sinned against a holy God and only he can save me. And it's believing in faith, Jesus died in your place. That should have been me on that cross, but Jesus got on and died in our place. And faith in saying, I'm gonna commit my life to you. I'm gonna come forward. I've done enough living without you in the center. Today, I'm gonna invite you in, Jesus. And if you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, I got some great news. Today could be that day that starts Every relationship starts somewhere. Wouldn't it be great for you to start a relationship with Jesus on Christmas Eve? And so I want to help you do that. I want to lead you in a prayer that you could just repeat after me in the silence of your heart. These are just words, unless you believe them by faith. And so I want to ask everyone to close your eyes, 
I want you to look deeply into your heart and ask yourself, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? Not just believing that he existed, not just coming with my family to church, but do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? And if today's the day you want to begin that, then I want you to pray these words, repeat after me in the silence of your own heart. Jesus, today I place my faith in you. Jesus, today I place my faith in you. I can't save myself, but I believe you died in my place. Will you forgive me of all my sins? Will you come be the Lord of my life, the center of the action? May my life wrap around you. Will you change me from the inside out so I could leave the old me behind and live as a new creation in Christ? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you've prayed this prayer for the first time, here's a, a great way to, to let us know. On the programs you received when you came in, there's a little perforated card at the bottom and a little box that says, I said yes. I want to encourage you to fill that out. One of our team members will get back to you and help you understand this decision that you made, this, this awesome decision to follow Jesus and, and help you get going. Maybe you've already made that decision, but you want to take your next step. Here's the best way to do that. Grab your phone and text the word next to 909-281-7797. One of our staff members will receive this and they'll exchange a few messages with you. I promise we won't spam you. We just want to help get you going on your next steps. Maybe that's joining a small group or, or you want to serve or you just want to speak with somebody. You need some assistance of some kind. Whatever that next step is, text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Or we have a next step table right out here in the lobby and there's somebody ready to have a conversation with you today to help you get going. just want to remind you that tomorrow on Christmas Day, we're going to be having a, a, a different service led by one of our staff pastors in the auditorium just across the way in 10 a.m., different, different from today. And for some people, it's a tradition to go to church on Christmas Day, and so that will be available to you tomorrow. But as for the rest of us now, may we never lose the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of God's power, the wonder of God's hope, the wonder of of God's love. There is no one like Jesus. The Word became flesh. God came down to us. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your one and only Son, Jesus. And just the mystery of how God can become a person, still be God and be in our presence and, and that we can have him live in us. God, I pray you, you would give us a childlike faith today to rediscover that, that wonder of how you work and thank you for being a God unlike any other. One who would trade in heaven for a bunch of riffraffs like us. Thank you, Lord. And I pray for anyone in here who has lost sight of what this day is all about, that today we would refocus our heart on the amazing truth that the Word became flesh, 
that you are here with us, Emmanuel. And as we prepare to take these offerings, God, would you use these gifts to bless others in our community and around the world. Thank you for this church, but most importantly, thank you for your son. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, and if you believe it in your heart, then somebody say, amen, amen.